Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And once again, we have somebody who has a vast knowledge of all things Dodgers on the program, and that is Dodgers team historian and publications editor, Mark Langell. Mark, thanks for joining me once again. Sam, it's a pleasure to be with you. And you and I haven't talked since the season's over, so first of all, my condolences on the loss of the Cardinals. I always state here that I'm a Mets fan, first and foremost, uh, but when any, anybody's taking on the Cardinals, I, I'm certainly a Dodger fan in that moment. Well, in that moment, game six, when we left the stadium on Friday, it was kind of interesting dynamics because uh, we had to plan for the World Series uh, the following week, and you've got Clayton Kershaw pitching in game six, and Ryu possibly in Game 7, and you had to feel good about your chances. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, sometimes you can have everything lined up perfectly, and it just doesn't work out. And so by the third inning, uh, you pretty much knew that it wasn't going to happen. And yeah. uh, I, I think a blowout in Game 6 is somehow easier to take uh, than, easy, than a uh, ground ball through the legs or a blown save or a controversial call in the ninth inning of a game seven, you know, at least we had some notice on that game six uh, that there probably wasn't going to be a game seven. That's true. Everything did uh, happen really, really quickly uh, when once uh, Clayton, I guess, lost it at some point. I was unfortunately not there. I was working at the time, so I wasn't able to see the inning. But like you said, though, going to my Messies, uh, the Met fans are still, you know, unable to get over game seven of the 2006 NLCS uh, with that that the infamous ninth inning and and what they uh, they keep going back to Carlos Beltran's called third strike. Uh, so you're you're certainly right. At least you did have some time to settle into that feeling that this wasn't going to be your year. We knew by the fifth inning we could probably either change the channel or go figure out something to, else to do that winter. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, it's it's nice though. Uh, you know, a little uh, besides the fact that it was a great season for you, and it was nice to, to have that again. Uh, Clayton Kershaw won the Cy Young Award the other day, and that, that must he have been excellent. Well, he did, and when you think historically, I mean, we take for granted now uh, the performances by Kershaw, and thanks to the baseball history, you can look in the record books and just see, okay, he's only the second Dodger to ever win it two times. A lot of times, you know, you have somebody that just has the career year whether it's yeah. Mike Marshall, the reliever in 1974, Don Drysdale, 25 wins in 1962, uh, you know, Oral Hershiser, 1988. Uh, but for him to not only come back uh, two years later and win it, there are a lot of people that made the argument that he could have won it last year, uh, right. writing at the statistics. And so uh, this three-year period, uh, it's so impressive. Uh, the other thing, too, I always remember him in spring training as a minor leaguer and I had to drive him over in a golf cart to the Major League Clubhouse to get his picture taken. And, you know, at that point, we're going to be in the, in the cart for about two minutes. And so, you know, he's only 19, and I'm trying to think of what to say. And I said, you know, they, a lot of people are comparing you to Colfax, or a lot of people want to make you out to be Colfax. And here's this 19-year-old kid, and he shrugs his shoulders, and he says, they mean well. And as soon as he said that, I said to myself, I'm not going to have to worry about this kid. He had a presence about him at that age, and you could just see, uh, just kind of like a young Tom Seaver, uh, he mm-hmm. just had a very clear picture of what he wanted to do, and it's very rare for a guy that young to have that presence. So anything he does on the mound after that point, it never surprised me because 
I knew his frame of mind as a minor leaker. Yes, that's a great uh, story to hear. That uh, really gives insight to Clayton Kershaw and, and who he is. And uh, obviously the wins were a little hard to come by, even though he got 16. Obviously he could have had more than 20. But at the same time, I, what really stands out to me, besides that great whip, is that excellent ERA, 1.3 ERA. It's, it's remarkable. I, I don't remember the last time that I saw such a, a low ERA for an entire season. No, and we're very spoiled. You grow up reading about Bob Gibson 1.12 and, and yeah. things like that, and Ron Guidry with the 78 Yankees, uh, 25 and 3, and, and these are sort of storybook seasons, Whitey Ford 25 and 4, and suddenly you see this in front of you, and, you know, if you see him every five days, you can really get spoiled because it just becomes the norm. Uh, if Kershaw's given up a run or two by the third inning, suddenly – uh, people are looking around like, what's going on? Because they're used to either a shutout or, or one run or uh, eight or nine strikeouts. He's just set such a high standard for himself. Uh, he keeps every every start, he keeps playing the game, can you top this? Well, before we transition to uh, the historic Dodgers, uh, I have to go all the way back to game one where he won one nothing, and the one, home, the one run was a home run to straightaway center. That was so exciting opening day, and just to see that type of performance, uh, you know, the bells and whistles, the pageantry, uh, the doves, the bunting, and everything like that, and what are the odds that he's going to go uh, hit one deep, uh, first career home run going around the bases, and, you know, I think the only other opening days you can think of would be maybe Fernando in 1981, uh, Bob Feller pitching the no-hitter for the Cleveland Indians in 1940. Um, certain things like that on opening day, even Tuffy Rhodes of the Cubs, you mentioned Tuffy Rhodes, and immediately you think that's the guy that hit three home runs on opening day, and everybody said, who is Tuffy Rhodes? And in this case, it was just a wonderful way to open the season, and whoever thought that uh, uh, he would hit a home run, and, and, and a bomb too, not just a hook yeah. around, the, uh, around the foul poles, it was a bomb, it was a shot. Uh, that that was really impressive and quite the, the way to start things off. And, uh, you know, now on this side of things, we have a cold one ahead of us, but uh, obviously it's generally warm where you are. But but at the same time, it's it's a long off season and, and spring can't come quick enough. And I, I wish you guys the best of luck when it comes to all the, uh, the hot stove stuff. And, uh, you know, best of luck uh, in the 2014 season, except for when you play the Mets. Well, you know, Sam, that's what makes it fun because everybody's going to reshuffle the cards, and it is a game, and that's the beauty of it because uh, you get so hyped up uh, in the playoffs. You have that feeling this could be the year, and that's the beauty of the game. You can't legislate Mm -hmm. what's going to happen. And so if you're going to follow a team in the ups and downs, uh, sometimes it doesn't always work out. I think the most memorable moment for me this season uh, will be after Juan Uribe hit the game-winning homer against the Braves in the Mm -hmm. uh, division series. I went to the dentist two days later, had my mouth open for 45 minutes, and it was a glorious 45 minutes in which I heard nothing about cavities, gums, anything like that. All I did was open my mouth and hear the dentist go on and on about how excited the game was and how optimistic he was for the playoffs. And I'm just sitting there, sitting there in the chair going, you know, really this is what baseball is all about. Um, I still have yet to figure out if there's anything wrong with my teeth because all I did was just <laughs> talk about the, the, the playoffs. And I, I just thought that was so cool, the timing of it all. 
Yeah, no, that that is that is really really awesome, and uh, that's the beauty of the game. It's the conversation and the, and the daily routine, and why it feels. I was saying this the other day to somebody that more than any other sport, it feels connected to time, and I believe it's because of the the way it becomes part of our daily routine. And, uh, and speaking of the hot stove and, and the offseason, you and I were, uh, you know, how it's always fresh every year. Uh, you never know what could be. We were just talking about Jason Bay and the Mets uh, right before we, uh, we got on air and, and just thinking about the hot stove a couple of years ago. And uh, unfortunately, he had some, some uh, really never caught a break, you know, running, especially running into that wall in his first year with the Mets out in Los Angeles and having the concussion that took him out for the year. And that reminded me about Pete Reeser and the, uh, all the injuries that he went through. So for all the listeners out there that don't know too much about Pete Reeser, um, please uh, give us a little, a little of an overview regarding Pete Reeser and his, his career. Well, Pete Reeser was a switch-hitting outfielder who won the batting title with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1941. Uh, and at that point, he just appeared to be this next great star. And his basic career was just a mixture of not only bad injuries, uh, but bad luck. Uh, he came to the Dodgers uh, in an in a amazing sort of way. He signed with the St. Louis Cardinals uh, in 1937. And timing is everything as far as Pete Reeser goes. Uh, that was around the time that Commissioner Landis decided that Branch Rickey, uh, the genius of the Cardinals' farm system, was cornering the market on these young players. He had a farm system, and he signed everybody in sight, and Landis finally said, look, you've got too many prospects. You've got too many young players, and, you know, most of them will never see the light of day in the majors, and so we've really got to break up this logjam. Pete Reeser was one of the players after 1937 that was declared a free agent. Now, Pete Reeser was the guy that Branch Rickey wanted to keep the most because of the potential. So Larry McPhail takes over the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1938, and, and Rickey and McPhail make sort of a gentleman's agreement. You carry this guy for a while, and then I'll get him back with the Cardinals. So he's in the Dodger minor league system in 1938, Class D, he plays very well. Uh, the Dodgers find out that he's ambidextrous, and so they encourage him uh, to bat left-handed as well, so he becomes a switch hitter. And 1939 is very significant in spring training because Leo DeRocher is now the manager, and Leo DeRocher is a player manager. He doesn't want to play shortstop one day, and so he had had his eye on this guy named Pete Reeser who had done well in camp, so he plays him at short. And this is the legendary part because for the next three days, they couldn't get the guy out. Something like 11 straight appearances, he gets on base every single time. So suddenly, he's the overnight phenom of the camp. DeRocher thinks he's found a great uh, uh, gold nugget at Class B ball, but there's a problem because Branch Rickey calls Larry McPhail and accuses him of double-crossing him. Larry McPhail tells Leo DeRocher, stop playing this kid. Now, Ricky, McPhail, and DeRocher, all strong personalities, all would become members of the Hall of Fame, and DeRocher's not going to back down from McPhail. He does not want to be second-guessed, and he's still trying to prove himself as manager. This is his first full year. He's going to show the authority. Larry McPhail, in his mind, is just a businessman. DeRocher's been a ball player, and now he's going to be a manager. He wants Pete Reeser. 
Now, Larry McPhail can't tell DeRocher the whole story about the gentleman's agreement that he had with Branch Rickey. So they butt heads, uh, DeRocher gets fired and then rehired the next day and everything like that. So to make a long story short, Reeser ends up staying in the Dodger organization. And throughout his career, uh, he wins the batting title in 1941. He's going guns a-blazing in 1942. And then in the middle of the season, uh, he suffers an injury. Uh, he slams into the wall, and back then there was no padding. Uh, this is July of 1942. The Dodgers have an eight-game lead, and he races to center field. He barely misses the foul pole. Uh, to catch this ball in an extra inning game against the Cardinals, but then he crashes into the concrete wall, and he fractures his skull, and he's got a brain injury and everything like that. He's not supposed to play the rest of the year, but, of course, Reeser's stubborn, and he comes back and he tries to play. Now, 1942 is also the time when the United States suddenly becomes uh, involved in World War II. Pete Reeser wants to join the Army. He wants to be patriotic but he's classified as 4F because of these baseball injuries. And he, he doesn't get into the Army, but then he tries again, and somebody at the Army recruiting office says, hey, that's the ball player, and he just waves him through. And so for then, then the next couple of years, Pete Reeser's not only in the Army, but he's banging into walls, he's getting pneumonia, he's, you know, all this stuff happening to his body. And then the, uh, one of the uh, captains at the camp realizes that he's got Pete Reeser and says, look, I still want you. You, you know, you're, you're probably eligible to be out, but why don't I make it so you don't have to do any of the uh, uh, soldier duties? You can have your private room. And so basically the captain wants to have his own fantasy baseball team, you know, in the Army camp. So Reeser sticks around for probably longer than he has to because uh, this guy wants him in the Army for his baseball team comes back to the Dodgers in 1946, does pretty well, comes back in 1947, this is Jackie Robinson's first year, bam, hits the wall again. And at this point, Branch Rickey is frustrated because there's this great, great player, and he's never been able to stay healthy. And he says, look, I will pay you an entire year's salary just to sit. Will you please sit? Will you please mend your body? And the whole thing about Pete Reeser was he could only go one speed, and that was full speed. And so he couldn't do it, and by the time it's 1948, Pete Reeser's broken down, and he ends up being traded, and he tries to make some comebacks with other teams, and it just doesn't happen. And, you know, later in his career, he comes back as a Dodger coach, and this poor guy has a heart attack at 46. Uh, oh, you look at a guy like this, and he was a great mentor to Maury Wills, and Maury Wills tells a great story of uh, Pete Reeser encouraging him. And I'm sure that Pete Reeser saw a lot in Maury Wills as far as uh, after Bobby Bragan had made Wills a switch hitter uh, in 1958 in the majors, he comes up uh, in the minors, he comes up to the majors, Wills struggling, Reeser works, Reeser works, Reeser works. And, in fact, Maury's uh, autobiography of Pays to Steal is dedicated to Pete Reeser. So Maury Wills becomes the National League MVP. It's 1962. Right around 63, Maury gets onto the team bus in Cincinnati, and he's smoking a little pipe. He'd gone to a haberdashery, and he buys a pipe, and he's got this little hat. And Pete sees this on the bus, and when they get into the clubhouse, he takes the pipe from Maury Wills, 
and he throws it into the ash can, and Maury describes being able to hear this pipe clang in this metal trash can, and he says, what's the matter? And Pete Reeser says, I don't want you to ever be satisfied. You have a look of content, and it's just not the way, you, you just can't act like you're content. And that was the secret that Maury realized. He realized that Reeser had to push and push and push. And so Pete Reeser is the 1941 National League batting champion, uh, but you look at the career, you look at the stats, you look at the injuries at a time before they padded the walls, uh, before there were batting helmets and everything like that, and you think about player safety and concussions and everything like that, and this is a guy who during his career a few times was given the last rights because he kept banging into things and, and risking his health. With Pete Reeser, you look at that trading card, you look at the photos, and you wonder what might have been. Yeah. Now, he's certainly at the top of the list of what might have been in my eyes. And um, it, it sounds as if his injuries and, and just the luck that he had helped, uh, you know, on, on the plus side in a way, helped lead to padded walls and helped lead to batting, batting health. I think you're absolutely right because, you know, you look at other players from around the leagues and, yes, there were beanballs. Beanballs were part of the game, but running into walls, that just wasn't the style of so many players. You didn't hear of players just crashing into fences and crashing into walls. And in the case of Reeser, it was always uh, – always, now, maybe in the back of his mind, he thought, you know what, I escaped class D ball and I don't ever want to go back, and maybe mm-hmm. he just always thought, I have to play a certain way, maybe somebody's going to take my spot. Uh, you know, a lot of guys, you know, have superstitions, and maybe his was just a fear of sitting. Um, you know, psychologically, he just couldn't uh, go any other way, uh, whether it's frank- fractured ankles. Uh, there's even a story in the minor leagues, uh, circa 1940, uh, when he goes back to the minor leagues, uh, he hurt his arm throwing the ball. Finally, after two weeks, he went to the doctor because the pain was unbearable. And it turned out he had fractured his arm. And this guy's playing for two weeks with a fractured arm. It was such a different time. And everybody just looks at this physical specimen. You just become a switch hitter in the minor leagues in, in 19, uh, whatever it was, 1938, and suddenly you're a batting champ a couple of years later, uh, you know, naturally picking it up like that. Um, you, you, you think about player safety, and, and you're absolutely right in terms of batting helmets, padded walls, and everything like that. Uh, Pete Reeser was the poster boy uh, for player safety. Uh, Pete Reeser's also the poster boy in terms of not letting the player dictate. Uh, obviously, you look back mm-hmm. and say, should people have stepped in? Should people have insisted? Uh, should they have ordered him to sit? Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, when the ball player just wants to play so bad and it's a tight pennant race and everything like that, um, sometimes the worst thing that can happen is the player uh, advises uh, or uh, either hides an injury or, or just says, hey, I'm fine, I'm fine. Uh, somebody sometimes needs to say, hey, you're not fine, uh, sit out for a week. Now, I had heard a, a story of, uh, now, I don't want to say that, that uh, Leo DeRocher uh, should have maybe made the decision to put to not put him back in, but there was one one time in I believe it was 1941, if I'm correct, uh, where he dressed him after the doctor said that he needed to sit out, uh, and and he wasn't supposed to go in there, but 
Leo needed a bat, a bat in the seventh inning or something like that. I think that's total. Uh, uh, I think that that's totally something that could have happened. I don't know that story, uh, that specific incident, but uh, I, I can see that, and, and you hear that all the time in terms of ball players. And when you're on that active roster, and suddenly the game goes into the tenth, the eleventh, the twelfth inning, um, it's very hard to just sit there. And a lot of times, uh, you hear stories about at, after the game, well, we weren't going to let him swing, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. As far as I think this year with either uh, Carl Crawford or somebody who had had an injury, instead of burning the pitcher, uh, that you know, you just have a guy stand stand at the plate like a mannequin, and it's very hard with the game on the line and everything like that uh, to suddenly not do something or to suddenly not steal a base or uh, you know you have to play outfield and there's a sinking liner and suddenly you got 50,000 people in front of you. Are you going to play it on one hop and tell everybody, well, you know, I didn't really have to go for it because I wasn't supposed to be out there. Adrenaline takes over. Um, it reminds me of the story of, a, of our uh, uh, team doctor. Uh, Dr. Robert Watkins is a back specialist, and he's been with us 20 years, 20-plus years, a brilliant man. Anybody that has a bad back goes to Dr. Watkins. And one time I'm in the press box sitting down having dinner, and Dr. Watkins walks by. And his arm is in a sling, and he comes by and says hello. And I said, what happened? And he had an embarrassed look on his face, and he said, uh, you know, I went to the Dr. Job fantasy camp, and, you know, we played ball, and I, and I hurt, I, I broke my arm. And I said, oh, you know, did you crash into the wall? Were you hit by a pitch? And, and his face got even more embarrassed when he had to admit that he tried to run over the catcher on a close play at home plate. You know, a world-renowned surgeon just got caught up in the heat of the moment at this fantasy camp, you know, for medical people. And just he just lost it. And for a sec, he just wanted to be safe so bad that he tried to bowl over the catcher. And, you know, it's a perfect example of what happens in sports when suddenly, uh, you know, instinct takes over. And uh, in, the, in the case of, of Reezer, uh he just wanted to play all the time. And yeah. He didn't. He didn't have a. He didn't have a five-year plan. He didn't have a five-week plan. Uh, he just probably just had the blinders on and thought about that game that day. Well, you know, it. it not to get too much uh, too much off uh, tangent, but it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, uh, the Pete Rose Ray Fossey play. I mean, that's an all-star game, but Pete, you know, don't block the plate if you don't have the ball, like Pete Rose has said. And of course, Pete Rose is, is you know, going to go all out even if it's just an all-star game, you know, and especially yeah. back in the day before the all-star game was uh, uh, meant something, quote-unquote, now. Um, but yeah. but to, to go with, uh, to go with uh, in terms of the player safety and uh, transitioning over to Branch Rickey, uh, that's the thing a lot of people don't know about him, other than the, you know, he, he was at, uh, other than obviously racial integration, he was at the forefront of the farm system, he was at the forefront of, of player safety when it came to padding walls and, and uh, batting helmets. And, and this is a lot of things that he accomplished uh, in, in his career, not only with the Cardinals, but especially with the Dodgers as well. I think he knew, you know, ball players as investments. And so that's why it was very important uh, for Ricky to not only make sure that they were healthy on the field, uh, but also off the field as far as family and things like that, uh, making sure that, you know, everything was okay at home. Uh, did you, you know, he was known as El Cheapo uh, in terms of contract negotiations, but let's say a ball player wanted to get married, 
that was good for a ball player's career in Ricky's mind, and so uh, it wasn't unheard of for him to give a you know two, three, four hundred dollar bonus if it would help a ball player get married, uh, because a happy uh, life at home is going to transfer to a happy life as a ball player. And uh, he, he was always thinking as far as different ways, uh, whether it's um, you know uh, mathematics, uh, even the uh, farm system in terms of sheer number. Uh, group lectures and everything like that, uh, really having sort of a university slash classroom setting to a baseball diamond and not wanting to have any wasted time. Uh, if you look at the layout of Dodgertown, uh, it's kind of like a soup plantation in terms of a buffet. Uh, there's really no standing around. You either have lectures or different stations or things like that. And so whether it was a military inspiration as far as keeping everybody busy, um, also, a, a fraternization as far as keeping everybody together, a campus, uh, everybody together, not only uh, at Dodgertown, but a barrack system so they can uh, grow up and they can uh, be together in calisthenics and everything like that. Uh, he really gave it a lot of thought. You just didn't really think about baseball strategy from Ricky because he, in his mind, conditioning and preparation uh, was more important because then he could just leave the strategy uh, to the manager. He just had to make sure that he picked the right manager. Right, exactly. Uh, and it just, when you mentioned Dodgertown, it reminds me of Walter O'Malley and, and his involvement with the Dodgers. And we always want to fix so much. We, there's, there's so much you and I want to talk about in these half hours, but unfortunately we only have half hour. But to transition over to Walter O'Malley, uh, let's, let's discuss uh, how he got involved in some of the, the, the uh, the foundations of, of Walter O'Malley coming over to the Dodgers? Well, he originally, in the 1930s, uh, had been a lawyer and, you know, working on bankruptcies and, and everything like that. And he had made contact with George McLaughlin, who was head of the Brooklyn Trust Company. And McLaughlin was the, the person that, that had the title uh, to Ebbets Field because the team had been in financial trouble. And so... Uh, the Brooklyn Trust Company uh, also had had control of the Brooklyn Dodgers as far as um, a business. And uh, O'Malley comes aboard as a lawyer, and he he this is around the time that uh, Branch Rickey joins the team. Uh, O'Malley had worked on on business matters, and one of the big things was when Rickey becomes president in 1942. Uh, he needs to get a lawyer to work on team matters because McPhail had done everything, but Ricky knew his limitations. He was all into baseball, but legally, you know, he didn't want to spread himself too thin. George McLaughlin recommends Walter O'Malley uh, to work on team matters as a, as a lawyer. Then by 1944, you know, Ricky, Ricky uh, and O'Malley start to have allegiances, and uh, O'Malley is working behind the scenes uh, on things, but O'Malley is also able to start to purchase stock. And within a couple of years, it's kind of, you've got O'Malley on one side and you've got Ricky, and in the middle you've got John Smith, who's one of the owners. And pretty soon, uh, Ricky's still, you know, at the forefront. He gets all the publicity for Jackie uh, and everything like that. But, but by 1950, uh, O'Malley takes over because the uh, widow Smith, John Smith's widow May Smith, uh, had voted uh, for O'Malley, and so basically it was um, which which. How do you want the future to be run? Do you want it run by Branch Rickey or do you want it run by O'Malley? 
and the Smith faction votes for O'Malley. But behind the scenes in the early 1940s, uh, that's how he gets his start. He was a lawyer. He had an engineering background. Uh, and gradually, as he's learning about the baseball business, uh, working behind the scenes, he realizes that baseball is a way to be able to take clients out uh, for an enjoyable evening. And so then it becomes a social thing for Walter. And so not only is he great at business, but it's a social thing. And then by, by Ricky, uh, Ricky is brilliant with Jackie Robinson and everything like that, but there's some business decisions that leave him vulnerable. One of the major ones was when the Dodgers and Ricky uh, made a play for professional football. Uh, that really hurt him after the war. Uh, he, he, they just took a bath cash-wise on trying to have a Brooklyn Dodger uh, ball team. And by 1950, uh, O'Malley has aligned himself, and the Smith family uh, votes, votes for him. Uh, but that's really how it started as far as uh, behind the scenes as a lawyer and uh, eventually buying stock, and uh, uh, it became either him or Ricky as far as who was going to lead the team to the next era after the 1950s season. Uh, you, you mentioning the football team, it's remarkable, you know, so many people when, when I mentioned the football team didn't, you know, still don't know that there was a Brooklyn Dodgers football team. There was a Brooklyn football Dodgers, there was a New York football Yankees, and of course the one that made uh, that, that still exists and, and uh, was able to survive the New York football Giants. And uh, there, there's this great poster, and it, it, it's such a poignant poster, um, because the original Brooklyn Dodger football team, they didn't have the same, uh, you know, uh, blue identity as the uh, the modern. Uh, I'm sorry, as as the Brooklyn baseball Dodgers. And when Branch Rickey got involved, uh, there's I guess it's a a pamphlet or or uh, just you know some yearbook or of some kind that actually uses the classic Dodgers script. And uh, it has a picture of Branch Rickey and some football players on there. But there's P little Peter O'Malley is in the, the right hand corner of of the uh, of of the cover. And he's got a little he's got a little coat and tie on, and uh, uh, it was kind of like the old Dodger line drives, only it was a football motif. And I think you know, back in the day in the 1940s, college football was really the king. Pro football really hadn't taken off yet, and you know, you'd randomly get uh, 90,000 80, 90, for Notre Dame Army. Uh, any of the big games like that. But pro football just hadn't caught on yet, and that's what really left Ricky vulnerable uh, because he lost a lot of cash, 47-48. Uh, as, as, as great as the Robinson experiment was, uh, football for him was just a disaster. Yeah, and we're going to leave it right there. Obviously, there's so much more to talk about, but we'll have to get to it next time when it comes to Branch Ricky Walter O'Malley and, and the transition uh, of, of different uh, of, of the front office. Mark, uh, always a pleasure, and thank you very, very much for joining me. Sam, it's always a pleasure, and uh, love the show. Keep it up. Thank you very much. That's our show, everybody. Have a great weekend. Take care.